Welcome to Under My Roof, an Orthodox Christian podcast in which we explore questions of importance to life in the modern world. I am your host, Father Jacob Siemens, Rector of St. Theodore and St. Tyler's Orthodox Church in Cardiff, Wales, and Chaplain to Orthodox Christians at Cardiff University. My jurisdiction is the Archdiocese of Russian Orthodox Churches in Western Europe, based in Paris, and I serve under Metropolitan Tsar of Putin. It is a joy to discuss matters of faith and theology, and I hope that you will join me in these discussions both now and for future episodes. But for now, let's drop in on today's episode of Under My Roof. This edition of Under My Roof emerges spontaneously from the work I've been doing of late in the parish related to the amount of time I've tried to spend on foot walking around my neighbourhood. It got me thinking about mission and orthodoxy. And so in the following few minutes, what you will hear is just some musings, some thoughts on the nature of mission and the theology behind it. My purpose is to offer you some words as I go about my daily work. And some of this work includes the fact that I have been um, going around the parish over the last number of weeks on foot. And of course, um, dressed as a priest, that is wearing my cassock, my pectoral cross, my scufia. One of the reasons for which is that people might recognize me instantly. I know that there's always the possibility that we as priests or other ministers of the church could be accused of somehow acting or living in a pharisaical manner, that is, wanting to attract attention based on our robes. I can assure you, though, that in this day and age, far from attracting any kind of positive attention, you actually run a far higher risk of suffering abuse, whether that's just simply through uh, verbal insults or, or, or worse. Now, I have to admit that that isn't something I've been subjected to, and for that I'm deeply grateful. Um, the worst um, thing that's ever been posed to me is um, a question such as, uh, what kind of priest are you? And this is because people are not familiar in this place with, um, with Eastern Orthodox priests. That's a joy, and I think it gives us as Orthodox an immense advantage. Because in the UK especially, and I suspect elsewhere that uh, religious education, so-called, features in the curriculum, People are taught a form of Christianity, or I should say, actually taught about a form of Christianity that is off-putting at best. Now, why I say that is, first of all, based on the fact that I do not believe it is possible to teach faith. You can teach about a faith in the sense that you can teach the basic facets. If you think of Islam, you can say, uh, there are five pillars of Islam, uh, and they are, and then fill in the blanks. You can talk about Christianity and say these are two basic doctrines of Christianity, and then fill in the blanks. But there's no way by simply recounting details or basic facts you can instill a sense of attraction uh, toward them. Not at all. In fact, I think the opposite is more likely. How silly does Christianity sound? I mean, it's no accident that St. Paul uh, described us as coming across as fools for Christ. I, for many years, have belonged to a cycling forum online, and it's a forum I hold to dear. 
because as obscure or perhaps as unreal as an internet-based form might sound, it has been to me and to other participants a source of real community. But one of the features of this forum is that many of the members are what you might describe as middle-class, largely white, um, middle-aged atheists. And frankly, in light of what I understand them to have taken at school, it's no wonder why. How silly does it sound that we should proclaim a belief in somebody who was nailed to a cross and the fact that three days later, or of course not a literal three days the way we calculate days in conventional terms now, he should rise from the dead. In this respect, it has been insultingly called the Christian Spring Zombie Festival. And while that kind of description is enough to make my skin crawl, I can sympathize with it. I do not for a moment uh, consider it anything other than um, an insult in a way, but an unintentional insult because it reflects the only sense so many people are left with after a lifetime of, um, after a lifetime of RE lessons in school. When you reduce religion to a series of facts, a series of propositions, all of which sound utterly absurd to the materialist ear, when you reduce faith, especially the Christian faith, to not just a series of propositions, but a series of moral do's and don'ts, then it sounds additionally absurd. And the advantage we have as Orthodox is that we do not fit that paradigm. The Christ we proclaim is fundamentally the same, yes, as uh, he uh, proclaimed by the Christian West, but we understand his life and work differently. We understand the nature of the Trinitarian relationship, that is, the word to God the Father and to the Holy Spirit, differently. We understand the process of salvation differently. We understand um, the nature of human sin differently. There is so much that sets us apart. And when we walk down the street as Orthodox Christians, in my case, as a priest, when we walk down the street um, dressed as a priest, visible to the world, accessible to the world, then what we invite is a new approach, an approach that uh, allows people to think differently about the things that they may have taken for granted since childhood. This is one of the advantages that we have as Orthodox Christians in the West. I witnessed this when I was in Montreal, uh, a place that uh, is dear to my own heart because although I grew up in Winnipeg, Canada and love the place very much, appreciate it in fact, in retrospect, much more than perhaps I did when I first left, uh, it was in Montreal where I experienced the real transformation in the sense that I say sometimes I grew up in Winnipeg, but I became a man in Montreal. I mention that because the presence of orthodoxy in that great city was a kind of subversive force. 
some of you will know Quebec history, but in the 1960s, it went through a great upheaval. We call that historically the silent revolution. It is when people walked away from the church. Quebec up until that time had been a veritable theocracy. And you can see that reflected in the architecture, in the prevalence of churches across the city, um, which frankly makes for a wonderful both visual and um, aural effect in the sense of hearing the bells and seeing the towers. But um, equally in place names and even in the name of Lionel Crou station, um, a major station uh, on the uh, on the Montreal metro system. But Lionel Crou was a 1930s, and please, if, if there are any Montrealers out there listening to me and can correct my history, feel free. But I believe he served primarily in the 1930s, and he was the archivist for French Quebec. And um, his sympathies, um, his political sympathies are something we would find repugnant today. He was not a positive social force in Quebec, and he in some ways represents the kind of uh, life that people knew in terms of the church, a life that was ultimately um, controlling, politically coercive, and um, socially destructive. I'm sure that arguments can be made in the other direction. But as things stand, the overwhelming force was not a good one. And so in the 1960s, Catholic Quebec, Catholic, um, or the, the inheritance, the, the um, uh, beneficiaries of Catholic New France walked away in droves from the church. In the 1990s, which is the period in which I lived in the city, the Orthodox life, which I would describe as bubbling under the surface, informed the religious spirit in a surprising and wonderful way. Clearly, in terms of the millions of inhabitants of the city, its reach was always going to be limited. But what I witnessed working in a bookshop in the center of the city, in terms of the clientele, was incredibly inspiring especially considering I myself was being formed for ministry in the Anglican Church. I was studying to be an Anglican priest. But on one occasion, for example, in the bookshop, we had um, in stock a hardcover edition of the Aesthetical Homilies of St. Isaac the Syrian. And there was a young man, I believe he was Coptic Orthodox, who came in, saw those um, homily saw that volume on the shelf and took it off the shelf and gazed on it with awe and wonder. And as young a man as he was, he asked us if we would keep it on hold for him because he couldn't afford it that very day until such time as he could pay it off. So thereafter, week in and week out, he brought in as much money as he could until he paid off the total cost of the volume and took it home. And when he was able to do that, he kissed it as if it was some form of sacrament. To me, this was breathtaking. It was breathtaking because it was a reminder to us of the fact that the faith was still intact, that beneath the surface of secularity, 
was a vibrant and dynamic faith. And numbers have nothing to do with that observation. It doesn't matter that he was one in four million. First of all, he wasn't just alone. But even if he was, it's the fact that Christ was there. And I have never forgotten that moment. Equally, equally, the witness of the Orthodox Church in America, which was, at least as I experienced it, the most outward-looking of the Orthodox communities in Montreal. There was, after all, the English parish, the sign of the Theotokos, and the French parish, uh, St. Benoit de Nurcy, and both met in the basements of churches. Uh, St. Benoit met in the crypt chapel of St. John the Evangelist, the Red Roof Church, on, um, on President Kennedy. And uh, Sign of the Theotokos met in the crypt of St. Leon, Roman Catholic Church, which, if I remember rightly, was in Westmount. But these were incredibly vibrant places. They attracted um, great numbers of people who were discovering orthodoxy, both French and English speakers, people who perhaps uh, were by uh, inheritance either Roman Catholic or, or Anglican, but who had really come alive when they experienced the Christian faith in the idiom of orthodoxy, in the, in the orthodox way. Um, one evening, uh, there was an ecumenical center in Montreal. Um, and it was up on uh, Dr. Penfield, so up behind McGill University on the side of the mountain. And it was an old mansion that had been donated first to, I believe, a Benedictine order and served as a Benedictine house until they could no longer uh, run it. And it then became an ecumenical center uh, for all the um, Christian um, traditions in Montreal. And one evening, as I was saying, um, my wife uh, and I went and attended a talk delivered at that time by Father Anthony Gabriel, who was the parish priest of the uh, large Antiochian Orthodox Church there, and also a contributor to the New Testament edition of the Orthodox Study Bible. But his talk was essentially just an intro to Orthodoxy. Now, considering when it was held, an evening after uh, which people had already spent the day working. Um, I believe, if I remember correctly, it was in wintertime, but it doesn't matter. The fact is, the room was full. People wanted to hear what he had to say. People wanted to know more about this faith. And really, that was just one example of the kind of activity that was going on around the city in terms of the proliferation of the gospel in what I've just described or described a few moments ago as the idiom of orthodoxy. Ever since that time, so that was 30 years ago, ever since then I've been moved by the fact that as orthodox Christians we hold a particular light. We hold the light of the gospel, but the light of the gospel as it's perhaps not been seen before, not through the eyes of many, many Western people. But that means it is incumbent on us to share it. 
Mission is not something oft talked about in orthodoxy. Um, I've noticed a series of volumes in which it has been explored more deeply on a theological basis of late. But by and large, it's still possible as an orthodox parishioner, for example, to say, oh, mission doesn't matter. Or, um, you know, evangelism is not something that we do as orthodox. But that's patently absurd. First of all, evangelism, which takes its name from the gospel itself, must be part of the way we live the faith. We must share the faith, not in a dogmatic, not in a coercive, not in any kind of forceful way, but in the same way it was shared by our Lord himself. Jesus coerced nobody. He forced nobody. He simply encountered people. He treated the people he encountered as brothers, as sisters. He spoke to them no matter who they were or what their background. And in this respect, the woman at the well is profoundly instructive. John chapter 6 is, I find, one of the most utterly remarkable, breathtaking passages in all of the gospel. And the reason for this is there is no reason why Jesus should have spoken to her. But not only did he speak to her, he knew her. And she went away from him knowing that he knew her. In his knowing, there was no condemnation. There was simply invitation and for, on her part, recognition. Recognition of who it was she was speaking with and recognition of who she herself was to her very core. So how do we then represent that? How do we go out and, and carry such a gospel with us? Well, in this respect, I suppose I could um, explore that and talk about what it means to the whole people of God, and I will do that. But in the first instance, I want to talk about it from a priest's perspective. There's no question that I have an advantage because when I get up in the morning, whatever it is I'm wearing as I walk my children to school, when I get home, I can put my cassock on over top of my clothes. I can don escufia. I can put my coat on over top of all of that and go out into the streets. In this respect, I'm representing something very clear to the whole community. I walk down the street. I see people. Uh, people see me. It's a privilege then to interact with them. And that may only mean smiling, nodding, saying hello. But in many cases, as has become manifest to me over the last number of weeks, it's entailed conversation. Conversation that involves surprise. What kind of priest are you, I've been asked. Where are you? Where do you meet? What is your church like? And what a joy and what a privilege. A joy and a privilege because prior to these encounters, the church as a small mission in Cardiff had been virtually invisible other than the outreach I could do through social media. But invisible isn't good enough not for the light. The light is something that must not be hidden. And so it's carried out 
not on the basis of any virtue of mine, I can assure you, but on the basis of something visible about the church going out and encountering people, um, talking to people, doing, I hope, as Jesus would do, simply recognizing who they are, where they are, and what they are, and inviting them to respond by following him. Now, I love that image, and it's one of the reasons I was inspired to start walking in my cassock. When you think about the story of the gospel, it is nothing if not a very long walk. The Christian church is based on the God-man going for a walk. He is walking as he meets the first disciples. He is walking as he speaks to Philip under the tree. He is walking as he meets the woman at the well. He is walking and stopping by in the synagogue to read and to teach. He is always on foot. He is always out in the world. He is always out among the people. Question is, how often do we do that? And I'm very much um, putting that question to myself as much as I am to any of you that might be listening now. How often do we do it? Or are we rather more often sitting at our desks, hidden in our offices, or better still, obviously, but um, not sufficient in terms of uh, inviting the world in, perhaps in our churches? It is central, indeed, it is our primary purpose to stand on the altar. But the whole of the liturgy includes the exitus as well as the reditus. That is, the whole of the liturgy must include the procession, that is, the going out, as well as the return, the standing on the altar. Unless we understand that as um, the larger picture of our faith, then we're really only doing half the job. I'm a great believer in liturgy. The Latins have an expression, say the red and do the black, or do the red and say the black. And I very much subscribe to that, meaning I follow the typicon. I don't believe in reducing the liturgy I don't believe in um, diminishing the liturgy in any way, in shortening the liturgy, or, or in missing out on this or that instruction, because it's, a, it's not my right. As a priest, the church is far bigger than me. The liturgical inheritance is far bigger than me. But also because I think the liturgy is an icon, and the code of the icon has already been laid down. It isn't for me to depart from it. What I am in favor of, what I do think is important for all of us to do, is extend the liturgy. That is, when we leave at the end of the great blessing, not to leave it behind us and then return the following Sunday or the next feast day, but rather to carry it with us. 
I started by saying as a priest, I have an advantage in that regard because I wear a cassock, but all of us need to do it. In that respect, we must all be evangelists. The other half of the liturgy, the procession, the going out, the exitus, must be a part of our Christian life. For in carrying that out, we are bearing the light, we're inviting people in, whether it's to our community or just into the Christian faith as a whole. And it's something, as I began by saying, we have the singular advantage in doing as Orthodox Christians. So mission, evangelism, it is intrinsic to the gospel. It is very much incumbent on us as Orthodox Christians, not least because of our liturgical tradition. It is an extension of the liturgy into the world, and it is therefore part, part of our primary purpose. But it is fundamentally incarnational, and there are methods to it. There are things that we can actually do in practical terms to make sure um, we're engaged, to make sure that it isn't something we forget as soon as um, the great blessing has taken place and we've proclaimed Amen. So what are some of these things? Well, if you want to take a couple of ideas, I would be delighted. If, that is, if you find them helpful as I describe them. We're a mission parish, and we here in Cardiff borrow a Methodist church in which to serve liturgy. Now, this Methodist church has been breathtakingly hospitable. They have allowed us to live out the fullness of our liturgical life with very few, if any, interruptions. Um, a few compromises have to be made, and therefore, because they take precedence on a Sunday, after all, it is their building, um, we meet, therefore, in the afternoon, which I know is anomalous. But um, that only applies to Sundays, feast days, um, and, and other times of the year. Um, there is no difficulty. But I mention it because when it comes to, um, when it comes to uh, mission initiatives, we have to make people aware that that building is in use by us as much as the principal congregation, the Methodist community. And so visibility counts. To this end, we've printed out two quite large vinyl um, roll banners, not roll banners, two vinyl banners that are attached to the rails of the yard outside the church. These are prominently displayed on the two streets that converge around it. So um, it means it's hard to miss the fact that we are an Orthodox church and we meet there on every, well, on every uh, Sunday and feast day. Um, Sundays at three, other feast days is announced. But the lettering is very big, it is visible, and it is inviting. In addition to that, I've um, made up posters that, um, for, for which I've uh, managed to purchase two aluminium stands such as you might find outside of restaurants that bear the menu for passer, passers-by to read as they go by and then decide perhaps to cut into the restaurant. I've done the same for the church. I've produced posters that go on these aluminium stands and which are then 
uh, set outside the, the main gate of the church whenever we're in the building. And they simply say the Orthodox Church is meeting now. Um, you are very welcome to come in, or words to that effect. I've also included a QR code that a passerby can read with his or her phone and um, f um, come across then a video on YouTube that explains exactly what's going on inside the doors. That way, anybody who is tempted can feel more comfortable knowing that we're not frightening, that nothing will happen to them in a bad way as they cross the threshold. So visibility of the actual center. If you as a listener um, are uh, part of a church that has its own building, um, then consider doing the same thing. You obviously won't have the same uh, challenges, but it may be worth putting out a sandwich board on the pavement or the sidewalk outside, um, inviting people in. Doing something in addition to um, simply opening, unlocking and opening the door. Doing something in addition to resting on um, the, um, you know, the fact that the, the church has a physical presence in the community. New houses have been built in the, uh, the vicinity of the church, and so I wrote a general letter welcoming people into the neighborhood and, uh, and described what went on at St. Theodore and St. Tylo Orthodox Church, saying that they would be most welcome to visit us, to join us, to call upon us for any sort of assistance they might have. And um, by and large, hopefully at least, putting no pressure on them, but simply saying that we were there at their service. Included in that letter um, were a couple of bookmarks that I had printed up for the parish, and I will actually display these bookmarks on a uh, forthcoming video. But the bookmarks uh, simply have um, our parish logo on the front with English and Welsh writing, stating that we are an Orthodox Church for Wales with our liturgy time and our contact information on the back of which is another QR code that takes them to a series of Orthodox resources, including our parish webpage um, and another webpage called Orthodox Exchange, wherein I try to gather various Orthodox resources and make them available to the public. So um, those letters are hand-delivered, gives us the chance to go door to door. We may just put them in mailboxes, but if people are home, then we're very happy to talk. It's a bit like a political campaign going door to door, but again, always uh, being a friendly and inviting face, in no way uh, putting pressure on the recipient, on the, on the neighbors. Um, then there is a social media presence. Uh, it's not limited. It can't be limited anymore to Facebook uh, because Facebook is um, not really reaching out to, to young people. Um, there are other uh, forms of media that are perhaps more helpful, but unfortunately, um, we almost need to become expert in all of them. It's not really a matter of uh, sticking to one, but rather understanding that that landscape is constantly evolving and being ready, able, and willing to adapt to it. One thing I would suggest is if you have a parish website and uh, a blog, and a podcast and a series of YouTube videos, whatever it is, if you draw those together and then um, put them on a link tree address, that will allow you to 
put the single uh, URL out there to which a person can link and then find everything that you offer. But we're still right now talking about what can be done really from your homes. Letter writing, even if it does end up involving going door to door, still involves sitting at your computer for a time. I think the biggest thing we can do is invite, actively engage in invitation. We need to be out on the streets, on our feet, representing Christ and his church, smiling at passers-by, letting them know that we are a friendly, loving, generous presence on the streets. You would not believe the number of people who suffer with drug problems, who might suffer with alcohol problems, who might come from uh, broken families or who are on the streets, um, who are forgotten or perhaps not treated by as human by those who walk past them. We can help them overcome a sense of desolation, a sense of loneliness, just by being there, just by smiling, just by talking to them and um, meeting them as fellow human beings, as brothers and sisters. When we do this, I think the mission of Christ is truly carried out. And while the methods themselves are not exclusive um, to orthodoxy, not by any means, I'm sure there are many communities doing something similar. It isn't something that we can escape or set aside as if it doesn't properly belong to us. We belong where Jesus was. And if Jesus's ministry, if his living embodiment of God was anything to go by, then that involves a very long walk and true engagement in the exitus that is part of the procession, which is inherent to our liturgical life as Orthodox Christians. You've been listening to Under My Roof, an Orthodox Christian podcast with me, Father Jacob Siemens. If you have enjoyed this episode and wish to support me and my parish, please be sure to tune in regularly. Also, please visit me at coffee.com slash priestjacob and consider buying me a coffee. That's coffee.com slash priestjacob, K-O-F-I.com forward slash Priest Jacob, all one word. Thank you, and God bless you.